Hello, I'm Hannah and welcome to Biopod, the official podcast for the School of Biological Sciences here at the University of Edinburgh. Today we have the lovely Hazel sitting down with Dr. Mark Hughes to talk about begonia. Mark is a plant biologist, focusing on the taxonomy and biogeography of the megadiverse flowering plant genus Begonia. Mark has travelled across Southeast Asia in search of exotic Begonia, and in this episode we will talk about how this globe-trotting translates into tangible biodiversity discoveries, and also how to keep your valuable plants safe from thieves and rare plant enthusiasts alike. Mark also gives us sage advice on how to do good science. Later, we will also be discussing the milestone of the century, 100 years of genetic research here at the University of Edinburgh. So stay tuned until the very end. But for now, over to you, Hazel. Hello, welcome to Biopod. Today, we will talk about a plant. You may happen to have one on your desk. If not, take a look at your neighbor's garden. I'm sure you'll find some of them. It's a very popular houseplant, beginning with B. Now you should be able to guess what I'm talking about, right? Yes, that's Begonia. But this is not the Royal Horticultural Society channel, so sorry, no tips for how to save your dying potted body. I'm here with a Begonia specialist. Dr. Mark Hughes from the Royal Botanic Garden, Edinburgh, and we'll hear some fantastic stories about the wild begonia. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. To start with, could you please give us a slightest idea about what begonia is and how many species are there? It's actually one of the biggest groups of flowering plants that we know. It's probably it's in the top five flowering plant genera in terms of size. Mm-hmm. Currently, there are 1,944 accepted species. We know wow. because we've counted them, but we think there are probably at least two to two and a half thousand by the time we've finished our descriptive work. So it's an absolutely massive group of flowering plants. That's impressive. Uh, where can we find them? They grow in the wet tropics. They love rocks and slopes and hillsides. They don't like flat forests like the Amazon Basin, for example. They're not too keen on that. But if you go to the Andes or the Atlantic coastal forests of Brazil or the Mm. hills of Borneo or Sumatra or Thailand or the Himalayas, you'll find lots and lots of them there. They really love steep, steep slopes. Mm. I think this is possibly because their seeds are so tiny that if they germinate on flat ground, a single falling leaf will just kill the seedling All right. and just suffocate it completely through lack of light. So they love to germinate on vertical surfaces, and uh-huh. that's where you find them. So that's why they love mountains. Great. Um, so you are a taxonomist. Uh, could you please tell us what, what's the taxonomy? So taxonomy is the classification and naming. Of, of living things. Well, not just living things, any, any things really. Um, it has been said that taxonomy is, it's an instinct that you're born with. Every, t- every time you look at anything, you instinctively classify it, whether it's a, uh, a book or a person or a, a rock or a plant, you, you instantly know or want to know how it fits in with the grand scheme of things. So a plant taxonomist just does that. We arrange things into groups 
and we arrange individual plants into groups called species, which is what we use as the basis for all biology. Mm-hmm. So, as a taxonomist, what's special about begonia? I think it's the fact that we're still in a massive discovery phase. So, on average, each year, as part of the global effort, not just just myself and my team, but there mm-hmm. are about between fifty and one hundred species described. So it's new re- species. New species described. Wow. So it's still. Do you have any estimation? What's the proportion of begonia that haven't been described yet? It varies from place to place.、Um, some places are known quite well, like Africa, for example. But in parts of of Southeast Asia, like、um, like Borneo or New Guinea, I think less than twenty five percent of the species there、wow. are named. So we've already got like one hundred names for those islands. So it could mean there are up to four hundred on each island, and、mm-hmm. like three hundred of them are just completely new to science and as yet to be discovered and described. Although a lot of those would have been collected already, we've got lots of unidentified stuff in the herbarium here, and they possibly represent lots of new species there as well. Oh, cool! So,、um, could you please tell us something about the begonia's evolutionary history? Why, like, when did this genus rise, and what's the speciation rate regarding those? Yes. Right. So it's actually it's reasonably young, and I think we're finding out lots of. Lots of flying plant genera are quite young, so it's about twenty-five million years old, and that was some work that was done by、uh, Daniel Thomas and myself. And the speciation rate again is possibly record-breaking. This is work that's being done by Hannah Wilson here at the garden at the moment,、mm-hmm. uh, and we're looking at New Guinea and looking at the number of species there. And if we assume that,、uh, as our results show, that that group is less than five million years old. It's been generating species faster than any other lineage of plants, so it's churning out species very, very fast indeed.、Mm-hmm. So that's what makes it really fascinating. If you're interested in evolutionary biology, then you want to look at groups、mm-hmm. where the evolution is happening and begonia is evolving very rapidly indeed. So five million years.、Um, to put it put it into scale, what's the normal speciation rate of other plant groups? Do you have any idea? The units are quite weird in terms of it's not a, an immediately graspable unit, and I also can't remember the exact figure. <laughs> but、uh, I know it's it's a record-breaking figure. So other、mm-hmm. other groups that、uh, are very high are particularly things that、uh, found, for instance, in the high Andes and Panama、uh-huh. environment. So yeah, in terms of the actual figures, yeah, I I can't <laughs> I can't tell you. But in my group, but, in my group, the silex. Um, it was around thirty-five million years ago when silex broke up with poplars.、Mm-hmm. So I guess that's quite a comparison between those two groups. Yeah. So we're looking at four hundred species in five million years. Oh. So that that's quite a lot. That's amazing.、Um, do you have any idea why do we have so many species in this genus? We've got several theories that our group is is testing. So we've got that first of all is the idea that that gene flow is very very poor between populations, so they can't communicate with each, with each other, and and hold themselves together as a single species. So you've got、um, once a species becomes widespread, each individual population loses contact with its with its relatives, and therefore can evolve in isolation. So 
uh, in the same way that you get speciation on islands like the Galapagos, for example. Mm-hmm. Once a begonia finds itself on its own little rock, it thinks it's on its own little island and therefore evolves in splendid isolation. Mm-hmm. And also, there's potentially some genomic things going on. So we've done a lot of next generation sequencing. So we've got um, the first genetic map for begonia. We've got the first genome sequences, entire genomes. And it seems that in terms, not not just in terms of species generation, but it seems that genome is evolving very quickly as well. Mm-hmm. So we've got what we call the dynamic genome hypothesis, which is potentially underlying lots of the, the generation of new species as well. It's a combination of things, I think. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. Uh, we just talked about where you can find begonia. Uh, that's mostly on the tropical area. Uh, so you your focus is on Southeast Asia, right? Uh, why did you choose Southeast Asia as your research location? I chose Southeast Asia because it was the biggest kind of black hole in terms of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things I was tasked with doing in my first job was to put together a baseline of all the species that, that were there. And from that, we quickly discovered that there is actually, there's just hundreds and hundreds of things that need to be described from there. So first of all, we needed to mm-hmm. get this um, this baseline data together. So I think Southeast Asia is fascinating due to the amount of stuff that's still to be discovered. Mm-hmm. Dive into the black hole. <laughs> yes. Uh, what is biogeography and how do you conduct biogeographic research? So biogeography is trying to explain why things occur where they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get different plants in Borneo and Sumatra, for example, different plants in different parts of Thailand. So it's all about trying to unravel this history uh-huh. of why you get different plants in different places, how deep that history goes and what caused these differences. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're trying to do using our molecular phylogenies. So we're trying to reconstruct all of the species relationships and date those back in deep time. Mm -hmm. So we know what species, um, when they arose and where they're distributed now, Mm -hmm. and then we can track their history to look at these really deep patterns of dispersal. Oh, but does that mean all the studies should be like years down the, down the line because we're still describing a lot of the new species. So the, the relationship of the between them must be another like another ten years or something. Yeah, we, it's ongoing. So we've got a really good baseline of what we think is going on in Southeast Asia uh-huh. and where they've arisen. But for instance, on Borneo, we've probably only sequenced. 20 or 30 mm-hmm. species, but there are probably about 400. So there's going to be more complexity to the story, uh-huh. but we've got the broad outline of the story for sure, we think. Um, but there's lots more to do. What does the biogeographic distribution of Begonia tell us about this Southeast Asia history? It tells us that along with... So Southeast Asia has undergone massive geological mm-hmm. evolution again, in the past 5, 10 million years, or even much more recently than that. And it's ongoing, as you see from all the, the volcanoes and earthquakes that, that happen quite frequently there. So all this massive environmental change has given rise to lots of new habitats, new islands, new mountain ranges. And Begonia has moved in and speciated on those. As these mountain ranges have grown, Begonia has travelled along mm-hmm. these and speciated along with the mountain uplift. 
So it's a combination of geological change and biological change. Mm-hmm. We are talking about what is line whenever we talk about the Southeast mm-hmm. Asia biogeography. So can you talk about what is Wallace Line and does your study support what's defined by Wallace Line? Yeah, so Wallace came up with this through his really careful observations that he did um, between the islands of um, Lombok and Bali across this wonderful chain of tropical islands mm-hmm. in Southeast Asia. And he found that each island had really separate groups of birds and animals. He didn't look at plants, um, but he found that there was a distinct break there, mm-hmm. despite the fact the islands were quite close together. So this represents a deep split in the geological history and that these islands have never been connected by any land and so they've always been isolated. Mm -hmm. And we found that what Wallace found for animals and for birds holds for plants as well. Mm -hmm. So begonias made it across Wallace's line but only a very small number of times. And it's only made it across from west to east. It's never made it back the other way. Mm -hmm. So it seems it's a really strong barrier. But although, for instance, only one or two begonias made it across, mm-hmm. those have gone on to generate hundreds and hundreds of new species. So it's wow. these tiny chance events, just a single seed getting across this really mm-hmm. strong barrier, that have had a really big impact on biodiversity. So a single event, five million years ago, a single seed mm-hmm. can eventually lead to a group of maybe four or five hundred species. So these are the patterns that we're uncovering. And yes, it seems that Wallace was right. Mm-hmm. Well. That's amazing. Okay. Um, now that we are talking about diversity of begonia, it's inevitable to relate it to the hot topic climate change. So are human activities there affecting the abundance of begonia species? We see, when I do field trips, we see a lot of, in Southeast Asia, El Nino related events. So lots of burning of forest during the dry, the, the much drier and more prolonged dry seasons now. So that does affect forest cover. Mm-hmm. Um, no evidence there yet for it causing any extinction of any species. Um, there's one species we've got in the collection here, um, which is perhaps more under threat, and that grows in a single island in the middle of the, the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. So it grows at the very top of the island, Probably most of the population is in an area of about 10 meters square or so, just on a single rock at the top where it's just high enough to get the mist. And but when, given when, climate, when the rock is gone, this species. Well, given extinct. climate change, if the mist zone moves up just a few meters, then that's going to go, that habitat is oh. going to be lost. So we've got it growing here. It's very happy in the Edinburgh glass houses. Mm-hmm. But in the wild, if that island continues to dry out, that will be one thing that will mm-hmm. definitely disappear. That also gives us the idea why we do need glass houses and why we do need botanics. Yes. If we hadn't described it or discovered it, that was only described uh, a few years ago, then we would never have known it was under threat. So it's all part of the chain of mm-hmm. discovery, first of all. Then you assess what threat it's under, and then you can take some action to try and do whatever you can to try and keep things alive and prevent, prevent extinction. Right. Okay. Um, so given all you've learned about begonia so far, what sort of research are you interested in doing in the future? I'm looking forward to doing just lots more species discovery. I think as you get to know the group, you the 
pieces of the jigsaw gradually fit together and you can see things that previously you just weren't quite sure mm-hmm. what they were, then now you realise, oh yeah, that's definitely new, I can describe that and give it a name. Um, and also I'm excited about working with my colleagues on the genomic aspect. So trying to understand why the group is so big, why it's evolved so fast, mm-hmm. looking at the genomic basis for what's driven this absolutely crazy bout of evolution that we see in this, this biggest genus of flowering plants. That sounds a lot of work to do. Okay. Okay. Um, I heard you went on a long expedition to New Guinea. Uh, I've always dreamed of going to those exotic areas to do my field work. So what was that experience like? It was good. Field work is always really exciting and it's really wonderful to see tropical forest, but it's also really, really hard work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I always have mixed feelings when you go on a field trip. But generally when you, you get there and you see a species either new or old or mm-hmm. a view or a butterfly or a beautiful bird or something then you realize it's a massive privilege to be there so uh, although it's it's it really is really hard work it's absolutely <laughs> fantastic to to see to see that the forest is so beautiful oh great so how did you get to the remote forest there were no roads public transportation at all right yeah that's one of the reasons why the forest in papua were so good and so well preserved there was there is no road network at all so if you can't carry it out with your bare hands then it's then it's still there um Mm -hmm. so we got around using the missionary of aviation fellowship so they're missionaries but they chartered their planes for us for a few days so we could fly from the coast into the middle of the forest uh, land on a tiny airstrip and they would Mm -hmm. pick us up um when we'd arranged it a few weeks later so you could get in using a tiny plane and then you just walk around that's the most amazing part, isn't it? Uh, do you have any funny stories happening from the expedition? Oh, gosh. There's, there's, every day something happens. Um, what can I say? Uh, perhaps there's an expedition we did in Sumatra a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And as you do, you get up in the middle of the night to answer the call of nature. And uh, I found myself peeing on a new species of begonia that I've only, <laughs> only just seen. On this expedition, how many specimens did you collect? Do you collect? Uh, we were quite a specialist. Tri- we collected lots of um, general collections of flying plants generally, but we were really focusing on begonia. So, uh, in order not to get too overloaded, we focused on those. So we had about 150 collections altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it depends what you're collecting and where you where you're going. But each collection is generally collected in sort of three or four duplicates. So you quickly end up with thousands of sheets of material that you have to get in and out of the forest in good condition. Oh, right. Uh, where can we find them in the botanics? You brought them back, right? Mm-hmm. Where can I find so them? So some of them um, will be in the herbarium, which is the research collection. Um, as yet, we've not planted any out in the glass house from the Papua expedition. Um, we had some thefts recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so begonias like orchids, where people get crazy about them they just want to have the full collection so we've had we've had one or two plants disappear from the collection which we do not want to happen so okay we, so kept, people don't do yes, it yes do not steal my begonias i know where you live uh, <laughs> so we've kept these back in the research collection but there are lots of collections that are outside 
in the glass houses from previous trips. Uh, lots of really beautiful things from from Taiwan, uh, from uh, from other parts of Southeast Asia as well. So yeah, do come along. There's always some begonias and flowers somewhere in the, in the collection. Okay, uh, the last question. Uh, given that you have doing decades of researches, what's your advice on how to do good science? Oh, um, how to do good science. Um, I think stay curious, stay inspired, and above all, collaborate. I think that's the thing. Uh, if you can find a group that you can share your enthusiasm for and your your knowledge of, it's much better when you can um, work with somebody. Mm-hmm. You get much more done and it just shares the joy of discovery. So collaboration and curiosity. Great. Thank you. And then that's all. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Mark. To mark 100 years of genetics research at the University of Edinburgh, we end this episode with a fascinating walk through the history of the Institute of Animal Genetics, focusing mainly on the two directors of the Institute, Dr. Francis Crew and Professor Conrad Waddington, I will discuss the work that they pioneered which still shapes research at the university today. The Institute of Animal Genetics began life as the Department of Research into Animal Breeding in 1919 housed in a derelict building in the university's high school yards with minimal equipment and scarce livestock. The institute was set up as part of an ambitious scheme to make Edinburgh a leading centre of agricultural education and research. Its first director was the charismatic Dr. Crew. Originally trained as a doctor who worked in the field ambulance service during World War I, Dr. Crew saw leading the institute as an opportunity to continue his childhood hobby of raising bantams, birds such as chickens. Despite humble beginnings, under Dr. Crew's guidance, the institute flourished. Within a decade of being founded, it secured funding for a purpose-built building of its own and began branching out into research topics way beyond its original remit. The list of staff Dr. Crew drew to the institute for example, is a roll call of future pioneers in the coming age of molecular biology. Charlotte Auerbach, whose fascinating life we covered in a previous episode, was Crew's personal assistant after obtaining her PhD and developed the subject of mutagenesis, the study of the origins and effects of mutations in the genetic code, through her work on fruit flies. Bertold Weisner set up the UK's first pregnancy diagnosis laboratory as part of the institute to continue his groundbreaking work unveiling the integral role hormones have in human fertility and fetal development. His work in sex physiology not only contributed to the development of pregnancy tests, but also oral contraceptives. Other honourable mentions include Honor Bell, who went on to become director of the Strangeways Research Laboratory in Cambridge and developed experimental techniques for growing organ and tissue cultures. John Haldane, an exceptional British Indian geneticist and biostatistician, who originally proposed the primordial soup theory as the origin of life. He also mapped genes encoding haemophilia 
and colour blindedness to the X chromosome and correctly hypothesised that sickle cell anemia imbues resistance to malaria. And that's just a small section of his work. And finally, the future Nobel laureate Herman Muller also spent time at the Institute working on mutagenesis. The influx of exceptional talent was an undeniable consequence of the destructive rise of fascism in Europe. The eventual start of World War II in 1939 redirected significant portions of the Institute's staff towards the war effort. Dr. Crewe himself took control of the military hospital in Edinburgh and eventually became the director of medical research for the war office. Post-war, he chose not to return as director of the institute and instead committed to a new role as chair of public health and social medicine, still at Edinburgh. He continued researching public health at multiple universities around the world until retiring and arguably set the foundations of what we know as medical genetics. The institute itself continued with a skeleton crew during World War II and was revitalised with the post-war appointment of Professor Conrad Waddington as director. Considered the father of epigenetics, the study of inherited characteristics beyond the DNA sequence, and systems biology, the multifaceted study of interacting biological mechanisms together. His pioneering work in developmental biology proved the vital role that the genome plays in controlling all stages of fetal development, a fact relatively obvious today, but visionary given how little was known about DNA at the time. In fact, Waddington's research on wing development in fruit fly larvae in the 1930s mimics surprisingly well the 1995 Nobel Prize winning research by Eric Wieschaus and Christiane nusslein volhardt Professor Waddington's directorship of the Institute grew it to one of the largest genetic departments in the world, which enabled him to advocate for the importance of biology and biological research across the UK. Unfortunately, the success of the Institute of Animal Genetics was also its undoing. The age of molecular genetics shifted each research branch into fully-fledged disciplines of their own, and the Institute slowly began to disperse into separate entities. The Institute of Animal Genetics fully disbanded in 1980, five years after Waddington's death. But its building, located in the university's King's Buildings campus, remains in use today, currently housing the Geosciences Department. It has, however, been aptly renamed to the Crew Building. Meanwhile, Waddington's work at Edinburgh has also been memorialised with the creation of the Waddington Building, which is home to the world-leading Centre for Synthetic and Systems Biology. Thanks in no small part to the hard work of Dr Crew, Professor Waddington, the University of Edinburgh remains one of the leading biological research institutes in the world. That's it for the episode, folks. I hope you've enjoyed listening and have learned a thing or two. Goodbye.